0: Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My
1: name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura
0: and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University.
1: On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners and we can be reached by email at Murders at gmail.com and very importantly if
0: you enjoy the podcast please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review we really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far welcome to ivy league murders this week we have long island's vanished heiress So it was a hot summer day, June 9th, 1937, in Stony Brook, New York. William and Alice Parsons began an uneventful morning on their sprawling Longmeadow estate, which was also an active farm where they raised squab. The Williams were considered landed gentry in Long Island. William took the train into Manhattan to run errands. At 11 a.m., Alice Parsons disappeared off the face of the earth according to one story. This is the story of her disappearance. So we're honored
1: to welcome Stephen Drelock. Stephen's an internationally recognized expert in the area of hot zone forensics attribution, which if we have time at the end, we'll ask him what that means. We're a little confused. He received his master's degrees from John Jay College of Criminal Justice in my favorite place, New York City. And he has over 30 years of law enforcement experience. And so we're really excited to welcome him. And his background is much more extensive than I'm mentioning, but I would be going on for 20 minutes if I was to read it all. So welcome to the show,
2: Stephen. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. So can you tell us a little bit
1: about your past, your career, and what led up to you writing this book?
2: Uh, Sure. I spent 25 years as a local law enforcement officer in Suffolk County, Long Island, New York. I was actually born and raised on the eastern end of Long Island. I enjoyed a very nice career there. I eventually, after 25 years, I took a position in Washington, DC as Director of Homeland Security for the United States Environmental Protection Agency, where I spent close to another 15 years. And then uh, I started my own consulting business after that, and I began uh, writing uh, historical fiction and nonfiction. Prior to that, I had produced about maybe a half a dozen uh, textbooks in my particular field. The forensics that I do is basically forensics inside of a containment suit. Most of my career involved wearing a containment suit, and working around something that was either radioactive biological hazard or or a chemical hazard. My involvement in this case is quite simple. There was a a retired detective on Long Island who convinced the district attorney at the time, uh, back in the 1990s, that he had new information regarding the location of Alice Parsons' remains. Now this is the late 1990s and she disappeared at 37 but he was convinced of his information. He convinced the district attorney who convinced the judge. And uh, over a period of a couple of years, we had two court orders to do excavations, archeological digs, actually. We actually did these digs with Stony Brook University archeologists in an effort to find Alice Parsons' remains. Both of those digs are very interesting stories. Neither of them appear in the book, by the way. They were in the last chapter of the book and uh, the publisher has a limit on how many pages you can have in the particular book. That chapter had to go. So wow. that was part of the story that the readers will not get, and maybe someday we can talk about it.
0: I'm really curious, Stephen, what were those leads like after so much time? I mean, you're talking 1937 to the 90s. What was that lead on such a cold case?
2: The lead was actually a short note and diagram. Quite frankly, actually, there's a picture of the diagram in the book or the publisher may have taken it out. I just don't recall. But anyway, it was a a small diagram and a small note sent to the postmaster of Stony Brook, Long Island in 1961. That detective I mentioned was a young detective at the time and he handled the case. He actually tried to follow the directions on the note and the note was very simple. There was a hand drawing of the farm with an X that said, she's buried here, dig here. And so he did. 30 some years later, after speaking to many, many people who grew up in the area under the farm, he decided that he had dug in the wrong place. And so with new drawings and new, um, new readings from um, local topography and, and maps, uh, he determined there was another place to dig. I was invited in on that particular excavation, which was my first start on the case. And a couple of years later, he developed additional information regarding an old cemetery where her remains may be. And uh, so we did a dig there also, court ordered. And so that was my involvement. Perhaps the most interesting part of my involvement in the case is when you read the book, you'll note that a very prominent character in the investigation was a local assistant district attorney by the name of Lindsey Henry, Mm -hmm. Lindsey Henry in 1937. He eventually became the district attorney. So did his son in 1978.
1: Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry hired me. Wow. What a
0: connection. That's amazing. amazing. So let's back up and talk about some of the personalities who are involved Mm -hmm. in this case. I guess starting with William Parsons. Our Ivy Leaguer. Yeah, he's he's our Yale guy. So we wanted to speak a little bit about Yale and about, he was part of another society called Psi Epsilon. So We feel that Skull and Bones kind of gets all the ink from Yale, rather. So we did a little bit of digging into Psi Epsilon. They have their creed, and it was founded in 1833. And they have their creed, and it's lifelong friendship and moral leadership, among other moral codes, basically. We did notice some notable SIU members, which are William Taft, Michael Bay, Nelson Rockefeller, and Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code. Sayu has 50 chapters. And I guess I read at Yale, it's actually now co-ed and the female members are called brothers, which (laughs) I think is pretty interesting. And that was William Parsons. Tell us a little bit about Alice Parsons who was considered an heiress, is that right?
2: Yes, yes, she was mostly due to her uncle. Uh, This case, and perhaps one of the main reasons she disappeared was due to her uncle, her mother's brother and his name was Colonel Timothy Williams. And Colonel Williams was a well-known man at the time. He had worked for two different governors in two different political parties. That's how well-respected he was. And at one point, he left government service and became the president of the IRT. And for those who don't know what that is, that's the Brooklyn subway system, inter-rapid borough transit system. And as president, obviously he he was a railroad person, Very wealthy. Alice's mother passed away at a very young age. Alice was six, her mother was in her thirties, her mother died of a blood infection after a miscarriage. And Alice had two older brothers, Howard and Frank. Alice's father, also named Frank, felt he could not raise a daughter. He would keep his sons, but he asked Alice's uncle if he would raise Alice, and he agreed. The relationship between the uncle and Alice's father was not the best. There was a collection of Colonel Timothy Williams letters at the New York City Public Library in the rare book section. Interesting. Uh, I had access to those letters and I read them. And there was communications back and forth in the 1920s, between the colonel and, and Alice's father, and, and it didn't go well. Alice's father was trying to get a hold of the trust money that the children had in their name. It was a typical family squabble. So uh, Alice eventually went to live with the colonel, and the colonel took care of everything for her. He put her in the best schools. She went to the Porter School, as many people know the Porter School in Connecticut.
0: So many of our subjects do.
2: Yeah. Gloria <laughs> uh, Vanderbilt, Jacqueline Kennedy, I mean, that's that's the crowd that went there. She graduated there. He made sure that she did her trip through Europe. She was fluent in in several languages and, of course, the arts. So she had a very good life with the colonel, and she still stayed in close connection with her brothers. And uh, she met William Parsons when she returned from Europe at one point, and he returned from Europe. They had a very short courtship, and and then they got married on, on Long Island. As a matter of fact, they were married at the mansion that Colonel had built on Long Island known as Shorelands Estates, which he purchased from a gentleman by the name of Samus. And in all the newspaper articles on this case, you'll always hear about how Alice left with two strangers to go visit the Samus property. That was the Shorelands Estate that she was about to inherit.
1: Oh, interesting, So, okay. And he came from Means as well.
2: His father was a paper magnate, and William stayed in his father's business for quite some time. As a matter of fact, William was in London representing the company for a number of years. Um, Speculation by the press, misstatements by the press, tried to indicate that the housekeeper and William had had a relationship in England when he was working there for his father. That's not the case. They were there at two different times.
0: Well let's talk about the housekeeper too because this
1: is kind of an interesting well let's just, let's set the set for the listeners who don't know the case let's set, so they're living in Long Island and they hire a housekeeper and so let's just for the listeners who don't know the story and they hired this housekeeper Anna so can we talk a little about Anna and what she brings to the dynamic of this newly married couple?
2: yeah and the, one of the reasons they hired a housekeeper and this is kind of important was that Alice, desperately wanted to have children. She was having great difficulty getting pregnant. She saw several doctors, both local and in New York City. The records of those visits and and the doctor's reports are available in the FBI file, I reviewed them. And one of the doctors, the specialist recommended to her that you've started this new life on a farm, you're doing heavy farm work, and it was a lot of work. And he recommended that she stop doing that and get some help. And so they both decided, her and William, that it was time for them to get a housekeeper to help Alice with uh, the regular chores that you would see on an everyday basis. They met through a relative. Uh, They met this person, Anna. Anna arrived and with her came a 10 year old boy by the name of Roy. And He himself becomes critical throughout this entire story.
1: Because she quickly seems to really dominate the household, wouldn't you say?
2: I will quote Williams statement (laughs) to the FBI. Anna dominates me and I dominate Alice. And well, why do
1: you think Alice, Sarah and I were kind of debating this, why do you think Alice allowed this other woman to kind of come in and take over her household this way?
2: I believe it was a little at a time. She got there in the early 1930s, Alice disappeared in 37, so this wasn't something that happened overnight. I think her and her husband became more and more estranged over the years, I believe Anna was very dominating personality, not just with men, but with anybody around her. She put it herself so many times to the FBI that she was the the leader of, of the family and she was the one making all the decisions. She was just the housekeeper, just the way things were. And the witnesses, community members and family members had all claimed that Alice was not one of a strong will and that she would easily bend. So I'm assuming that Anna, with that personality, just was able to dominate her in every aspect of her life. I think also, Alice really, Roy the
0: son also filled sort of a need for for Alice as well, would you say, a maternal need that she couldn't have her own children, so.
2: Yeah, there's no question about it. Alice would talk to many community members Again, this is based on the FBI files, and highly praised the young man, talked about what private schools they were going to be sending him to. And at one point in time, they even agreed to allow the boy to use the parson's name. And that's very
1: bizarre to me. When I read that, I, I found that to be very, very odd. I know it kind of had something to do with them getting citizenship, but I mean, you don't really need to use their last name to get citizenship.
2: It was odd to Alice's family as well and they questioned it, especially her brothers, but they decided that if this is what Alice wanted to do, they would support her in that. It was all couched around the idea that they were somehow or other protecting the boy and making a better life for the boy.
0: Can you also talk about, I find it interesting that these people, that William went to Yale, Alice Parsons is set fairly well in life and they choose sort of a farming lifestyle, which is quite a rigorous life. Can you describe Long Meadow Estate and their sort of setup there? I know that they were raising squab and trying to market squab paste. Now, can you kind of set the scene? <laughs> which we re- for, we re- for our re- listeners? Re-
1: researched and now Sarah's gonna make me squab.
2: <laughs> I, I am. <have. laughs> First of all, I was there. I had the opportunity on the first archaeological dig to be on the farm. Of course, it had been abandoned. When I was there in the 1990s, the farm, all the structures were still there, but the farm had been overgrown. And the property had been purchased by the uh, State University of New York and would eventually become part of Stony Brook University. But it was your typical farmhouse, two stories, a couple of bedrooms upstairs. There was a separate garage, small basement they had actually it was only about 11 acres in total size it was quite a nice piece of property set back it had a circular driveway and uh, they had a lot of outbuildings small little shacks for tools and different things of course they had their coops where they were raising their squabs. now at the time for some reason or other the uh, squab paste became a big hit especially at weddings it was the caviar of Long Island I suppose
1: What is squab paste? I mean, because the listeners should know that this was quite a delicacy.
2: It's pigeon. They would slaughter pigeons. They would turn the pigeon meat into a paste, and they would put it into a can or a jar, and it was considered quite a delicacy. Huh a
0: pate almost, you know? Yeah, Exactly. Yes. It is a pate. It's gone the way of like baked Alaska and fruit cakes, I think,
1: you know? <laughs> well, we looked up recipes for them and the only ones we could find were on very fancy sites. So I think it's still very much a delicacy as far as this paste.
2: Yeah. One of the reasons that William went to New York City that day, that fateful day, was that he was meeting with distributors to try and find a larger market for their squad pace. And it was meetings that were actually set up by Anna Capriano with her Russian contacts. So he was meeting with Russian caviar suppliers who were going to explain to him how he could better market his product.
1: So can we talk about that day? So let's kind of like start out that day and what what happens that day, the fateful day.
2: Certainly, and, and I think for anybody who is interested in story, the story, the most important thing to know is the story is told that there were only, at the time, there were only three people who knew what went on. That was William, Anna the housekeeper, and her son Roy. So any story that existed prior to my book was based upon what they had to say. Every newspaper report, everything out there. But the FBI files were sealed until just a few years ago, so nobody knew the truth as to what actually happened or who said what. So the story that I will be happy to tell you will be their version of the story.
1: And you had access to all of those FBI files, correct?
2: Yes, I did. It was finally unclassified at the National Archives. It was 9,000 pages. Out of the 9,000, I photographed 1,000, converted each photograph into a PDF, which was searchable, and eventually created a library for the entire case. Now, basically, the most important thing to me was the fact that I understood what I was reading, because I've read thousands of criminal investigative reports, and there's a lot of subtleties there that some people would miss. I've met two people who also looked at the archives, and each of them spent less than two hours and thought that they understood the case. Oh, no. I spent 30 days, over 9,000 pages. And so there is so much information in the FBI file. So much of it is useless. So much of it is critical.
1: Let's get back to that morning and what happened.
2: Certainly. So that morning, uh, all all three woke, they had breakfast together. Again, I'm telling the story from the combined stories of our three principals. Alice drove William to the train station, the St. James train station on Long Island. And he got on the train and he went into New York City and he had numerous meetings that day until late in the afternoon. All of those meetings were confirmed, even the early morning ones. The FBI sent people into the city. He did go to New York City. He did have these meetings. That part is true. Alice returned home after dropping him at the train station. As she was pulling into her farm's circular driveway, young Roy was on his bicycle going to school. He waved to her. She waved back. She then went into the house. She did some housework with Anna, helping put dishes away from breakfast. They did a little gardening, I believe. They did a little work in the coop area on the squabs. And at one point in the late morning, somewhere around 11 o'clock, the time fluctuates from 10, 30 to to 11. A car pulled in and in the car was a man and a woman. Anna and Alice were both in the kitchen. They looked out the window. Alice always greeted visitors, not Anna. So Alice left the house and went out to speak to the people in the car. Anna, after a few minutes, she could hear them speaking. She left the house and went to the coop area where there were some goslings that she was dealing with. And at that point, Alice appeared in the coop area and said, this couple want to see the Samus property. Now, the explanation behind that is the colonel had passed away. The Samus property, the Shoreland estate, was being broken up, and Alice was one of the uh, key people getting the inheritance. There was a house on that property, a small one, that they were looking to rent or sell. And so she was supposedly in the process of doing that, so it made perfect sense that she would be going to show somebody the Samus property. Alice had changed from her work clothes into some dressier clothes, got into the car with these two individuals, the man and the woman, and left the farm. And that's the last anybody ever heard of Alice Parson. So her husband comes home on the train and Alice was supposed to pick him up at a train station. She did not appear. He called the house, spoke to Anna, the housekeeper, Anna said she didn't know where she was, but she had gone out with a couple of people to look at the Samus property earlier in the day. Lots of phone calls to friends and family. And then finally, when uh, William gets home, he's dropped off by a cabby. The cab driver acknowledges the fact that uh, Anna met them at the door of the farmhouse. William goes in. He can't reach Alice with any of the family or friends. And He first tries to the state police, they didn't answer their phone at their substation in Port Jefferson, so he called the Brookhaven Town Police. The call was answered by Lieutenant um, Stacy Wilson and the first words out of William's mouth was, Stacy, I need to see you right away. And that was the beginning of the investigation. Williams showed up with another officer about 15 minutes later and that was the beginning of the case.
1: And it it seems when they show up, the word kidnapping comes up very, very quickly, which Sarah and I were discussing, and just seemed like an odd thing that you would presume so quickly that there had been a kidnapping.
2: The term kidnapping originated out of the mouth of Anna Capriano. To, To bring up the possibility of a kidnapping, she said that everybody knows she's in line for a big inheritance, and of course, nobody knew that. This was not a Vanderbilt. You would not be able to find anything in any newspaper about her receiving a large inheritance unless you were doing an unbelievable amount of research. It just wasn't out there. So Anna was wrong on that aspect of it. Anna insisted that it could be a kidnapping. And more importantly, all through the evening, she insisted that they look for a ransom note.
1: So bizarre that she's like leading the police.
2: She was, she was. I think it's critical at this part to to, to get into the ransom note because it's a very, very important part of the case. To set the stage. So this is now, uh, Stacy Wilson had gotten there sometime around eight o'clock in the evening. Other investigators showed up. The local, One of the local assistant attorneys showed up. The state police showed up. The feds weren't involved yet. And so now we've got some uniformed office from Brookhaven Town. Uh, by going through all of the reports, because every single person that arrived there was interviewed eventually by the FBI. So I was able to put together exactly who was in the house at what time, all during the course of the evening, right up until the time the ransom note was found. What I found was that there was only a handful of people, they were all law enforcement officers or assistant district attorneys, who had never met the Parsons before. That left... William, Anna, and Roy, just those three. Sometime around 1 a.m., an investigator from the district attorney's office, I believe it was Walker, searched the vehicle outside. This is the very car that Alex reportedly drove to the train station. He searched it, he had a large flashlight, there was nothing in it. I read about that in the newspaper many years ago when I first was interested in this case. And it always bothered me because I've met law enforcement people in my life who do searches and they do it poorly, all right? And uh, it always bothered me that this guy could have missed that letter, all right? excuse me, that ransom note. When I read the FBI file, I realized he didn't miss anything. Because an hour later, it was searched again by another competent law enforcement officer with another flashlight. There was nothing in the car. On a third search, somewhere around 1.30, two o'clock in the morning, there was a note found on the floor of the rear of the car. It was in an envelope. Three quarters of the note an envelope were visible on the floor. So the first two people didn't miss this. This thing was planted at some point after the first two searches. Back to my point, nobody in the house but law enforcement officers and Anna, William and Roy. So one of those three had to plant the note.
0: And, and what did that note say?
2: Yeah, and, and I'm sorry, I, I don't remember the words verbatim, but they were looking for a $25,000 ransom. It was going to be paid at the Jamaica train station later on uh, the, the next day, the next evening. It was uh, printed. A copy of that is in the book, the copy of the ransom note photographed it. I did see the original mm-hmm. in the FBI file. It's available. Two very, very important things about the note. First, the contents of the note were within an hour of its discovery leaked to the press. Now, why that is important is because just picture somebody trying to make a, a ransom payment with 100 reporters all trying to get pictures at the Jamaica train station. You're right. The information got to the press by a trooper by the name of Sullivan, who sold the contents of the note for $100. Hmm. The FBI special agent in charge of the New York office got a call about 30 minutes after the note was discovered. He got a call from Norma Abrams of the Daily News. She was a very famous female reporter at the time, and she becomes critical at the end of this case. But Norma Abrams called the at home, woke him up and said, what are you doing about the big kidnapping case on Long Island? She, a reporter, knew about it before the FBI. Um. And so he, of course, got the ball rolling. Agents were rolling out of New York City by five in the morning and we're gonna arrive at the farm later in the morning. The last thing I'm gonna tell you about the note, because it becomes an important part of the case later on, is that eventually they found that the the paper that the note was written on was inside the house. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a watermark on the note. It matched a watermark on a drawing of an airplane found in Roy's bedroom. Uh, He had a book on the shelf on the Great War, World War I, and it was folded inside. And they compared that paper to the, the ransom note later on at the FBI laboratory, and it was a match
0: and and I also just wanted to briefly say too that after the Lindbergh kidnapping, the FBI were getting involved in kidnapping is that is that correct? That was about five years prior to this case
2: Yes, uh, actually, the Lindbergh law had been passed, and uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping law, which gave the FBI jurisdiction on kidnapping cases with the caveat, and that caveat was that the victim had to cross a state line. Now, they assumed the victim was crossing a state line, which is how they always claim jurisdiction early on, because how do we know they didn't cross a state line? So let's assume that they did cross a state line, therefore we're in charge. Later on, the FBI got a little better at this, and uh, they claimed even communications crossing state lines, such as a ransom note put in the mail or a long distance telephone call anything going across the state line would then give them jurisdiction. And that's true to this day, by the way.
0: And it's, it's it's such a mess, too, with all of the different law enforcement agencies involved in this case. Can you speak a little bit about what a tangled investigation it became because of that?
2: When lead FBI investigator, his name is E.J. Keneally, a very famous FBI investigator whose specialty was kidnapping cases. When uh, Inspector Keneally arrived, it was total chaos. There were Literally dozens and dozens of law enforcement officers, state police, district attorney investigators, assistant district attorneys, Brookhaven Town Police, uniformed officers and investigators, just and reporters all over the property, trampling over everything. It was an absolute chaotic scene. It took several hours for the FBI to finally get control. They did it with a ruse, by the way. They convinced all the local authorities that everybody would withdraw from the farm all law enforcement people, because they want the kidnappers to contact uh, William Parson again. Everybody was gonna withdraw from the farm and we're all gonna do it at the same time and the FBI will set the example. And everybody did, except for the two FBI agents that the FBI had hidden inside the house. (laughs) With the permission of Mr. Parsons, William Parsons, And they stayed there for probably two months and did everything they could so nobody would know that they were in there. That's primarily how they kept control of the investigation
1: so maybe we could talk about when they the police the fbi come in and they maybe we'll talk first about the police coming in and questioning um, william and anna because that's pretty bizarre Her responses were surprising to me.
2: (laughs) Well, let's start with probably, as in most cases, the first interviews are the most critical. People change their stories, they add stuff later on. That first crack you get at somebody, it's always been my experience, is the denominator, the yardstick, whatever you want to call it, That, that is what you go by and you either add or subtract from there. And in this case, Stacey Williams, the lieutenant from Brookhaven Town, who. Handled himself quite well through this whole case It appeared to me. He interviewed Anna at the kitchen table, the housekeeper. And as he's talking to Anna, he's looking around as he's supposed to do at his surroundings. And he notices on the table as he's talking to her, a bottle of chloroform. He notices where it came from, Kane's Pharmacy in Port Jefferson. He notices that it's half full. Uh, He doesn't do anything with it yet. He keeps talking to her. Another investigator steps into the room who starts questioning Anna also. And Stacy excuses himself because Anna's being distracted and he wants to speak to Anna's son, Roy. Roy is upstairs in the bedroom. He goes up to interview Roy and Roy tells him the story about uh, the family and everything is fine. There's no problems in the house. His aunt went to the train station in the morning so that's the story he got. The important part is when Stacy came down back downstairs, the investigator was gone from the kitchen, Anna was gone from the kitchen, and the bottle of chloroform was missing, never to be found again. Wow.
0: So there are a series of untruths that both William Parsons and Anna tell. Can you detail tell those a bit? I
2: will try. I did an entire chapter. You call them the nine lies right? Just, so the right? <laughs> you know, there was just so many, and I don't even know where to begin, but I'll I'll stay with the chloroform for a moment. The chloroform was denied by William during the FBI interviews. It was denied by Anna. There was never any chloroform. There was never any bottle, The police are all making it up. And so, of course, what did the police do? They went to the pharmacy, and they're at the pharmacy. Chloroform, even at that time, was a controlled substance. You could buy it over the counter, but you had to there had to be an entry in a log, who bought it, et cetera, et cetera. And sure enough, there was an entry purchased by William Parsons about 30 days before that. He bought the chloroform. Pharmacists remembered him, remembered in fact that he had also picked up a prescription that day from a doctor at the same time. There was records of that prescription being picked up along the chloroform when the FBI brought the pharmacist into a room to confront William, saying, is this the guy that bought the car? Park? Absolutely. I know that man, he's the one. Williams still denied it, still denied it, even though there was a man standing in front of him who had books and records and Anna, of course denied it.
1: They seem to lie about very unnecessary things. She lies about driving when that's easy to confirm that she had a license. And and why that's
0: important is because of the position of the car and the car changing. Is that correct, Stephen? So can you explain to the listeners what the significance of Alice Parsons' car moving?
2: Yes. Well, let me do the ending of that first. The ending of that is if Alice Parsons' body was disposed of when her husband was in New York City, the only way to do that was to get it into a car and move it. Okay, people, so it's a big farm, 11 acres, they could have buried it. No, there was literally a thousand men, almost shoulder to shoulder, walking through that 11 acres over several days. Any freshly turned earth was completely excavated. The body was not on the farm, okay? So it had to get into a car and it had to be driven someplace. But William wasn't there. So that means that Anna would have had to drive the car but William and Anna insisted that Anna could not drive a car. She didn't know how. One of the major lies in the case. Of course, at the end, lots of eyewitnesses in town who claimed that they saw Anna driving the car many times. More importantly, William's own sister told the FBI she was present when Anna took her road test. Why would they lie about such a thing? The reason they had to lie about it was they knew it was a critical part of the case. They knew about the car and that the car could not have been moved if they wanted their story to hold up. And the car was moved, all right? Anna claimed that when Alice came home, she parked the car next to the house. It was there all day. When the police showed up that night, that's where the car was, that's where the note was found, except one small thing. When the trash men showed up early in the morning after William had gone to the train station, the car was not next to the house. The car was in the garage. Somebody had moved the car from the garage to the house. They just would not back off their lie about the driving until the very end. They eventually admitted that she could drive, but she didn't drive that day. That was their story. Do you
1: think Anna was could have handled to disposing of the body herself as
2: one woman? No question about it. First of all, Alice Parsons was a rather petite woman, and Anna was... Uh, to use the old phrase, strong like bull. And she was used to heavy-duty farm work. Moving fine. the body was not hard. She
0: was 5'8", 160 pounds. That's, she's, you Sturny. know. She's sturdy. She's
2: sturdy, you know. One of the other lies that it becomes important is when uh, Stacey Williams, in his initial interview with Anna, asked her to describe the two people in the car, her initial response, I can't. I didn't get a good look at them. Mm-hmm. Two hours later, when she's being interviewed by somebody else, she starts providing a description. A few hours later, she's being interviewed by another person. She adds to that description. Go all the way to the month of September, which is interviewed by a newspaper reporter, full details of the color of their suits, the hats, clothing, their physical uh, size, how much they weigh. And yet, she's looking out a kitchen window at two people sitting in a car 30 feet away, and she's giving them basically their suit sizes. It, it, it was all made up, let's put it that way.
0: Can, I- of fascinated with anna i have to say and we we haven't spoken too much about her background we know she's a very domineering sort of imposing woman from russia can you just kind of give us a little bit of a little bit of texture with her what she grew up in russia just give us a little bit of background and her history of lying by the way doesn't seem to have begun with this incident it seems like she's got a long history of that so can you kind of fill us in a little bit
2: about that Sure. Um, she married a gentleman by the name of Alexander, and uh, they had a child together in um, Eastern Europe. Melikova was the child's name. It was a young a young girl, and uh, she died very young. The child. After the death of the child, Alexander decided that he wanted to go to America, and that uh, he was going to try and start a new life there, and that Anna would be joining him eventually. Anna did try to join him. She got into New York City at the time. I believe it was Ellis Island. Her application for entry was rejected, and she was sent back across the ocean where she, she stayed in, the, in what was known as a camp in England. The immigration paperwork for that first visit there was a bunch of lies. She said that her husband was there, but what she didn't tell him is he did leave her in Europe, and he did originally say that she would join him, but between that time and her arrival in, in the United States, they had divorced. So she's telling the immigration people her husband is waiting for her, but she had they had been divorced. Also, she told them that she had had three children with him, and all three had died when it was only one. That was just the beginning of her lies. That was on the first immigration attempt to get in the country. The next attempt, she had already had Roy. Uh, she claimed that uh, Roy's husband had been killed in a car accident in Serbia, which was not the case at all. And she just kept claiming different people were her husbands and that different people they all had died at different times. It was you actually needed a, a an excel spreadsheet to keep track <laughs> yeah, you know, of the stories that she told about her family life when she was trying to get into this country and the stories she told the FBI. Did
0: you know anything about her background like when she grew up in Russia or like did you grow up during like Leninist
2: Russia? You know, the, the FBI did not spend a lot of a lot of time with that. There was Some talk about her family having been not members of the royal family, but workers for the royal family. They were part of the, uh, and I want to say landscaping, but that's not quite right. They were probably servants of some kind for the royal family. That was part of her family. I believe she had a sister and a mother, which she stayed in contact with over the years, I understand. The newspapers had reported that she was royalty, a Russian royalty, and she was not, by any means. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, she was a con artist, uh, basically, and uh, she managed to get, get away with it. She had one of those personalities, it didn't matter whether you believed her or not. She was going to tell her lies, and she could care less whether you believed her. You felt that way about the FBI.
1: I know. I thought that was interesting because, I mean, obviously, you know, William's the weak link, and I, I mean, I really thought he would crack and i think he probably could have cracked if if anna if they hadn't allowed him to be around anna and maybe you could explain how they kind of separate them and question them and then allow them back together again because he seemed like just about ready to crack and and i think the central
0: question people are kind of the investigators are saying wow are william and anna What is the relationship
2: here? The the core of the relationship was, and and I, I do believe this, is that eventually William fell in love with Anna. I don't believe it was the other way around. I don't believe Anna really cared that much for him. As a matter of fact, in her own words, she made a statement in 1961 that it was a business relationship. She needed somebody to take care of her son. But with William, he was just totally infatuated. He would become insanely jealous if another man even looked at Anna it was a very, very uh, strange relationship. They, of course, denied there being a relationship. As a matter of fact, when Stacy Wilson showed up at the house that night at 8 o'clock in the evening, within the first three minutes, the first lie was told when William walked Stacy Wilson, lieutenant, into the living room and said, oh, by the way, this is Anna Parsons, <laughs> yeah. my sister, or something. It was so bizarre that he would lie about something like that. Just bizarre. Now, the relationship between them finally came to light. The FBI did a thorough search, and and having been an investigator who went into many facilities, I've had to do this myself, one of the best places to look for evidence is the sanitary system. And uh, they uncovered the sanitary system. And keep in mind, at this point, they knew full well that Alice Parsons was desperately trying to get pregnant, seeing specialists doing whatever she could, hiring a housekeeper but the sanitary system was filled with used condoms.
1: Obviously, they weren't being used by with
2: Alice. Exactly. And so the, the, the FBI knew right almost from the beginning that there was a sexual relationship between the two. Now, the FBI on at least two occasions brought them in to New York City to be questioned at FBI headquarters. This in itself, and I'll leave it to the book, but it was a monumental task to get them out of the house in the middle of the night under the nose of the hundreds of reporters that were staked out, but they managed to do it with the help of the two hidden FBI agents who were inside the house. Mm-hmm. But they got the, the two of them into New York, and there were times in these interviews where they would take one person out of the house, say, William, and get him in a car, bring him to New York City. Then they'd go back for Anna, and William didn't know that Anna was also being taken in, and they'd be questioned separately. You are absolutely right. There was a point in the investigation when William was ready to crack. And as a matter of fact, and and of course, this was not reported in newspapers, they didn't know, William gave a written sworn confession to being involved in the murder of his wife. He would not give the details, but he kept saying that he was responsible for her death. And the uh, details of that confession are in the book. The FBI were so convinced that night that he was going to give more details they felt he was gonna confess, but they thought he would have more details. They brought in a special person to sit in the back of the room to listen to the confession. That person was the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Wow. He came in from Washington, D.C. This is an important case. He supervised this case himself and sat on top of it every single day. There were communications between Hoover and Keneally. And he was in the room when William Parsons gave his partial confession. I'll call it a partial confession. And I don't mean the Monday Monday morning quarterback, the FBI. I don't know whether I would have done anything different. Uh, I think they did a marvelous job most of the time. But in this one instance, looking back, you would say, we shouldn't have done that. And after they got that confession from William, William and Anna into a room together, and it didn't go well. And even though they had a hidden microphone in there, it was clear that Anna was browbeating him and that uh, he was going to probably change his mind. And he did. The very next day, he called Keneally and told him if he wanted to recant his confession. Keneally went to the farm, they typed out a new statement, totally recanting the the first one. Uh, He even admitted in his confession about the chloroform and that he had bought it. In the new, in the recanted version, he claimed he never got the chloroform. Uh, It was that bad. Uh, By letting the two of them together and to communicate, Maybe they couldn't have stopped them, but I'm telling you, it was a, a real blow to the, the investigation. Probably a key turning point.
1: It seems like there was so much circumstantial evidence here. And in, you know they say you can indict a ham sandwich. I mean, was there no indictment because of the no body? I mean, I know today you can indict without a, without a body, but it just seems it was a pretty blatant that they did it and there was never an even, even an indictment.
2: Well, first we have to define they. The FBI had no jurisdiction. There was no, no proof whatsoever that there, she crossed the state line, or that there were communications across the. Spectrum. I shouldn't say that. No, nope, I'm sorry. Th- those were a ruse. Uh, we need to talk about the letters and the. Yes, line. yes, uh, we uh, have the to letters. Say about uh, but, but there was no, there was no interstate communication. So the FBI and Keneally knew that. Keneally knew from the very, from very early on, he was working on three theories. He had the kidnap theory the voluntary disappearance theory, and the murder theory. He knew quite early on that the that the kidnap theory probably wasn't true. The disappearance, voluntary disappearance theory, she didn't take anything. She had money. She could have gone to a relative. None of that worked. So the murder theory stuck with him pretty well. So if it's murder, not a federal crime. Right. There's no federal statute. And he had no jurisdiction.
1: What about the local police?
2: Absolutely. The locals had the ability to do that. We've had several, two or three district attorneys during this period of time, it's an elected position as you know, and uh, they, they change. The last one uh, district attorney who, who was there at about the time of this case was going on was a Munder, Mr. Munder, and um, he was definitely afraid of this case. It was clear that he didn't want to prosecute it. He was one of these politicians that would attack the FBI for what they hadn't done. But when somebody said, well, what are you doing? His answer was, let me attack the FBI some more. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was just terrible. The FBI eventually in 1937 forced his hand. They gave him the entire investigation, every detail They held nothing back as far as I could see. He did absolutely nothing with it. There was not one interview done, not one search done, not a thing. Now, getting back to your point, you can indict a ham sandwich. They had and again, I'm speaking for my 25 years as a local law enforcement officer, and this is the critical part, a local law enforcement officer working inside of a prosecutor's office. That's where I was. My Mm -hmm. first three years were with Robert Morgan in Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the next 23 in Suffolk County. And having 25 years inside of a prosecutor's office, I can tell you that in this case, they had more than enough probable cause for an indictment between all the lies, the ransom note, and of course, the letters. So there's numerous pieces of evidence that could easily produce an indictment. That is a far cry, and I have to tell your audience this, the probable cause you need for the indictment is a far cry from beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the level of proof you need for a conviction. So a district attorney, especially a politically elected one, may decide that we're not going to win this case if we go to trial because we don't have a body. He even said that publicly. And unfortunately, Anna Capriano heard it. One of Anna's Mantras, and she repeated many times to William on undercover recordings and to others, if there is no body, there is no murder.
1: Don't you think, though, if they had been leaned on a little more with an indictment, though, I guess I'm just thinking, at, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, that William may have folded if he was looking down at an indictment, had more pressure been applied?
2: I, I think he would have folded, and I think he would have folded and he would have told what he knew. And I have my theory on this case. And if I'm correct, what he knew may not be enough to convict Anna.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the Mary and Paul Jones letters?
2: Oh, one of my favorite parts. Okay. So Paul Jones, they never heard from the kidnapper after the first couple days. They expected when the ransom wasn't paid, they made every effort to make the parsons available, new phone lines, and then hear from the kidnapper. Then they got a letter from Paul Jones. And Paul Jones basically uh, told the story in this letter that he's got Alice, and if you want to see her, you're going to have to pay me and you have to do the following. The FBI studied the letter carefully and the the information in the letter, and they truly believed it was not a ransom note. It was an extortion letter, okay, Uh, in the sense that this person had nothing whatsoever to do with the case. He was just trying to jump in and, and get some money. They discussed this letter with both William Parsons and Akapianov. They kind of dismissed it somewhat. Follow-up to that is another letter came in from Paul uh, with more details. Uh, this one was written in the famous green ink, okay? And the letters, most of them were all written in green ink. It followed the first letter pretty well, and uh, he was making his demands. And then there was a, another letter that came in after that, again, this time though, from Mary, who was Paul's sister. And Mary was talking about how Alice was sick, she may not last much longer, and you're gonna have to pay the ransom, and we're gonna supply you with details, and I think Mary said she felt very bad about this whole thing. I'll give you one more, is that they later on got a letter indicating that uh, Alice had died in their captivity. Now, what is so important about this is that the letters were a complete ruse on the part of the FBI. The first letter from Paul the extortionist was true, but they decided to build on this. And uh, they wrote the letters. On the third letter, which was dictated by Keneally, Inspector Keneally in his New York City office, and handwritten by a person in the office. And it was handwritten when Keneally handed the gentleman his green pen. And that was Keneally's pen. Keneally signed all of his FBI reports in green ink Uh, The newspapers never found out that the green ink letters were from Keneally. But the important thing is on his third letter, he sent it in and this one was addressed directly to Anna. And he included three blank pieces of paper with the letters. If you had torn them from a pad and there was a couple of extra blank ones at at the back. But what he had done was he had forensically marked those blank pieces of paper, hoping that she may use them at some point in time. Well, guess what? The FBI got another letter from Mary and Paul, but it wasn't written by Inspector Keneally. Attached to the letter was a piece of Alice's jewelry identified by her husband and family members. And it was attached to a piece of paper, and that paper was one of those forensically marked by Keneally. And in that letter, Mary slash Paul slash Anna claimed that Alice had died.
0: Wow. The utility of Alice's death for Anna, she would have been able to collect quite a bit of money. She, w- William, Anna, and Roy, right, were recipients of as well. Is that correct?
2: They were. She demanded uh, at one point. I have to go back a little bit in time. When the fall before, before, so this would be in the fall of 1936, Alice took a trip to California to her brother's wedding. That would be Howard. Uh, McDonald and, and as a side note, Howard McDonald's daughter has contacted me regarding this case. Oh, and so Alice went there to attend this wedding. That left William and Anna back at the farm, okay? During this period of time, Anna convinced William that she needed an insurance policy, that if she was fired, all right, for any reason, or if William died or Alice died, that she would get $25,000. Same amount that was in the ransom note, by the way.
1: Which we want to tell our listeners is $500,000 today, just so they have an understanding of Mm -hmm. the amount of money. That's a pretty big uh, severance package for a house cleaner.
2: (laughs) Yes, it certainly was. And so uh, he went so far, William, as to to draw up a legal agreement. His attorney at the time, whose also name was Samus, I believe, was absolutely against it, but uh, William insisted. Anna and him had a major blowout at that ballot at the same time when... William's wife, Alice, contacted him to ask how he was doing, and Anna flipped out over this, that he should not be talking to his wife, and she didn't want that to happen anymore. The fight resulted in William tearing up that agreement. Now, six months later, 30 days before the actual kidnapping, the wills for Alice and uh, William were changed. There was money put in there for Anna and William was responsible for that and some money for Roy. But I've examined all of that documents and so did the FBI. And quite frankly, the reason that Alice wanted to change the wills at the time is because Howard had just got married and his new wife was expecting. And their original will had had the older brothers, Frank's children mentioned in the will and Alice wanted Howard's children to be mentioned in the will as her aunt, and that's the real reason why she changed her will. Yes, there was some money in there for Anna, but it truly wasn't a lot of money. Anna, What Anna believed was that William was going to be inheriting himself a huge amount of money from the uh, Colonel's estate, because Alice was gonna get the money, and if Alice happened to pass away, then William would get the money. Right. What Anna didn't realize is that unless they have a body, Alice couldn't be declared dead. And if she isn't declared dead, William can't collect the money. Mm -hmm. So she miscalculated on that aspect of it. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until seven years later that Alice was declared dead. And in the end, they gave up their rights on the wills of William William and Anna, and only Roy received a small amount of money, about $15,000, I believe.
1: So this case eventually goes cold, and so you said the FBI turns it over to the state police, and then the case just goes cold, and Anna and uh, William moved to California, and now do they take Roy with them to California?
2: This is one of the most interesting aspects of the case because there was one last gambit that Inspector Keneally was going to play. He felt convinced, as he did with the ruse letters, the whole purpose of the ruse letters was to see if he could get Anna to write something back about where the body was buried. All right, because Anna was slowly realizing that she wasn't getting this inheritance unless a body was found. Right. But remember where her mantra, if there is no body, there is no murder. So she was facing a huge dilemma. And so the issue about William signing the confession and all that stress and all that arguing got to him, he decided it's time to pull up stakes. He was going to go to California look for a place for them. So he left for California in the fall of 1937. Anna and Roy were going to follow. They had moved out of the farmhouse at this point. They moved from apartment to apartment in Queens, New York, outside of Manhattan. Every time they moved to a new apartment, the FBI moved into the actual apartment or broom closet right next door and established listening devices. Keneally firmly believed he could get them at one point to say out loud or on a microphone where the body was buried. He then decided that when Anna and Roy would join William in California that day, those very first critical hours is when they needed to have electronic ears, ears eavesdropping on them, because that's when they would be discussing what the FBI was doing and possibly talk about the body. And to that extent, they had FBI agents meet the train when it arrived in California with Anna and Roy on board. They were followed to, uh, numerous parts of California, and an FBI agent made a critical mistake during the surveillance. He stopped his car when he should have kept going, and William Parsons saw the surveillance, and they lost him after that, and the bottom line is they didn't get to install their listening devices. They couldn't even find out where he was for at least 48 hours. I got to read the letter that the director of the FBI sent to the sack of the Los Angeles office, and it wasn't pretty. He cleaned up the language, but the bottom line was you people really screwed up. And let me explain to you how that surveillance should have been conducted, because an entire year-long investigation of a murder suspect went down the tubes because of your poor actions in the field. It was a real career killer, to say the least. Put the man in charge out there yes they they established a home out there within a few months william parsons adopted roy and gave him his official last name became roy parsons and then sometime after that he in fact married anna and she became anna parsons and they then live out
1: their lives, cor- correct, in California?
2: You, you, you know, they did. He developed, um, I believe, Alzheimer's uh, sometime around the 1960s. He passed away in the early 60s. An interesting side note is that uh, the note came into Stony Brook in 1961. The, the local police were asked the sheriff's office out there to go I- interview them and to see what they knew about this note, this letter. And uh, he was in bad shape then. Uh, he could barely speak and it did all the talking for them. It was quite sad. At that point, Roy, by the way, the young boy, and I want everybody to remember, at the time, he was 10 years old and his mother was basically telling him what to say and what to do. He grew up to be a fine young man. He went into the Navy, he married, he had children. He became quite a famous artist. Mm -hmm. A lot of his pieces are museum quality. I end my story somewhat with a bit of an anecdote that as I was looking at his artwork, I came across one that was just stunning. And it was a drawing of two robed figures and they were female and one was tall and one was a little shorter and it was clear that it was Alice and Anne, at least it was clear. Wow. And I like that so much, I tracked down that original and I bought it. Wow. It's here, and oh it's hanging here in my office right now.
0: Oh gosh, that, I love, Can you can you point yes. the camera, I want to see it. <laughs>
1: that's great we actually looked him up and we we actually did see some of his art and he is he's, he's very, very good ta- yeah very talented oh wow oh
0: those are the oh yes I, that's
1: on ah. your book. right 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 that's on the cover of your book and yep. so for the listener it's actually on the back of the book on the back of the book yeah
2: it was originally entitled two rope figures and then when I looked about how paintings and drawings are named I didn't know this but the Mona Lisa was not always called the Mona Lisa. One of its owners changed the name to the Mona Lisa. So I get to change this to Alice and Hannah.
1: The listener will love to know. It's right on the back. We actually can put a picture up on Facebook site. We also did, did some deep diving and, and went and looked at Roy's artwork, and we're very impressed. And to this day,
0: poor Alice Parsons has never been recovered.
2: I want to tell you, listeners that there's a website with lots of photographs, historical photographs. I also have some of the... Um, Original FBI documents and newspaper articles posted on that website. Is it okay if I give it to you folks? Yes, now? exactly. Okay. Please, please. Um, so it will be uh, www.dreelak, D R I E L A K, dash, associates, A S S O C I A T E S dot com, backslash, one word, Alice Parsons, A L I C E P A R. S-O-N-S, and you will see lots of photographs that aren't in the book, some documents that aren't in the book, and I think it's a pretty good, oh, and there's also family trees to keep track of all the cast of characters.
1: Wow. We can put, we'll, we'll also share that on Facebook. Absolutely. We'll share like, it on Facebook so everybody who wants to really go deeper on this case can, besides ordering the book, which we encourage everyone to do, they can also look at the pictures because it's fascinating. And I love that you put pictures in the book. I love it when you went going to do that. Yes, me too. Yes. You wrote this so well. It almost reads like a novel. And, you know, to have the pictures there, really, you paint such great characters with each of them. And then when I see their pictures, they really become very real to me. Very much
0: so. Steve, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciate it. If
2: if you like this story, I I hate to do self-promotion, but I have a historical fiction series of books that I have written. And the very first book, by the way, includes Alice Parsons. I included her in my historical fiction and everything is true right up to the point she gets into the car. I put that in my story and it involves both her and also the RMS Republic, which is a real ship that sunk in 1907 off the coast of Vantucket with $1.3 on gold on board. That's and right. I've written my third one, which was just published last month. And uh, well, they're all entitled with subtitles, but it's murder season in the Hamptons. Which is where I grew up.
1: That we'll put that up too, because and that's a great title, and I love the Hamptons. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's fascinating, and it kind of goes goes along with. Of our course IV you do, US. darling. Yes. Well, I used to live. <laughs> I used to live in Manhattan, so but this was a true pleasure, and thank you so much again for your time.
2: Thank you both very much. I had a great day. Murder. Murder.